Welcome to the Myofascial Health Podcast, hosted by me, Unu. Follow along as I explore the depths of John Barnes' myofascial release approach on my road to mastery. Along the way, I'll be sharing the lessons I learn as I open my myofascial release practice in Austin, Texas, so that you don't have to make the same mistakes I do. Welcome back to the Myofascial Health Podcast. Now, I have a very special guest today. I have known this gentleman for quite some time, since middle school, actually. He is in Austin getting a doctorate, and he is finally graduating. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Marlon Bailey. I appreciate that. I don't know that you'd ever called me Dr. Marlon Bailey before, but I do I do appreciate being here. I feel like you've earned it. You know, <laughs> if there's anyone who is deserving of it, I think it's you. You know, and I've seen your life. I see that you've put a lot of work into things. I think that you've earned the things that you've gotten. And I think the most important thing that I can see in your path is that you don't complain about things. And so with that, I think that you have been rewarded when the time was right. And obviously your efforts have been rewarded. So as you're in town here, the reason why we started this podcast is because you posted a very interesting story on your Instagram and it talked about your journey into what you're doing now. So can you tell the audience a little bit more about that? Okay. So yeah. Let's see. When did that, when did that start? So, wow. I'm like, do I start from the beginning and go back or do I start from the back and go forward? Whatever like you feel is necessary. Okay. Yeah. So right now I am a sports psychologist in a university in Tennessee and getting there was a bit of a trip. So I, I would have had to, I had to get the doctorate to get this job and didn't even know that like this was a job I wanted at the time, but I absolutely love my job and and wouldn't want to be anywhere else. I feel like I'm definitely where I'm supposed to be. That said, even getting into graduate school was uh, a difficult a difficult experience. Well, I got into graduate school the first time to get my master's in social work, uh, kind of on accident. I showed up to I was at AmeriCorps at the time. And I showed up to uh, work and this guy was like, hey, what are you doing after your year's up? Because our year was almost up. And I was like, oh, I'm looking at some jobs here or there or whatever. And he said, do you ever think about grad school? And I said, yeah. And if I ever applied again, I literally coughed like that because I had applied twice already and not gotten in. But I was like, if I ever applied again, uh, I would apply to, uh, I was thinking about going social work. And he just looks at me and is like, so what are we talking? Do we need to get you in by the fall? And I was like. What you talking about? You know, like, and it turns out he was a professor at the social work school at Texas. And he was like, hey, why don't you come look at the school with me and we'll see. And I was like, let me think about this. And then I came like the next week and went with him to the school and he walked me around. And this school, at the, like they're tearing it down now to build the new basically like practice football stadium. But this school has like been old forever and it was not like fancy or anything. It wasn't like, oh my gosh, I gotta go here. It was just like, <laughs> it was just like, all right, this is a school. Like it wasn't very big or anything. Anyway, he knocks on the door and then he walks in 
And he's like, stay here for a second. And then he comes back out and he's like, come on. And he's just like, hey, Marlon, this is the dean of the social work school. And I was like, okay. And she's like, hey, come in and talk to me for a minute. And so I'm just like talking to her. And I was like, is this Josh Groban? Because Josh Groban was playing. And I was like, she's like, yes. I was like, this is the Closer album. And she's like, yes. I was like, I love this album. She's like, I love this album. And so I should mention that she is a black woman and I'm a black man. And you would have not thought Josh Groban would be the thing that like, united us. <laughs> united. <laughs> <laughs> but it did. And that's where we were. And so she, she just says, she's like, hey, I don't know what we can do. Fill out this application and we'll see. And that application was due in January. I filled it out in June and started first grad school in August. And so finished, worked for three years, and then got to this point where, and I had applied, I think at least two or three more times in there and got rejected again. Um, When I say I applied, I applied to a PhD program because I wanted to teach college. Like, that's what I wanted to do. And like, as much as like, I was cool with my life and I was doing a lot of traveling, I did the running of the bulls around that time, nice. which we have in common because you did that too, didn't yeah, you? I sure did. Not at the sure same did. time, but like, yeah. Uh, but I was, I was living my life well, but like, there was always this like dream of like, I want to teach college. And I was, I don't know. I just, it wouldn't let me go. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, like. Like, I don't know that it was my choice to like let it go, but it wouldn't let me go. Something that just like kept hounding me, like, you want to do this thing. And so, yeah. So I applied some more times while I was working and things like that and just kept getting rejected. Like, didn't even get an interview. And then uh, I got to the point where I was working and I was working for this boss and she was great. And she was like, I'm going to retire. And I didn't want to work for anybody else there. I just, I did it. And so um, I decided I was going to apply to grad school one last time. And if I didn't get in, I was never going to apply to apply again. And I was going to quit my job and do something else. That was the first time I ever got an interview. I got two. And it was, you know, obviously the time I got in. And so it was this culmination of like, years of doing all this work, writing all these essays, like, and then just being told no, like almost perennially, like when the flowers were coming up, I was about to get rejected from graduate school. Like that's how it looked every year. Um, And, you know, I'm not a person who, I'm not a person who thinks that like you shouldn't quit things, right? Like sometimes you got to like cut your losses and like, go to the next thing or like move or like figure out like what's next in your life. And sometimes that ends up being much better than if you had like wasted your time doing this thing over and over and over that wasn't going to work. And there are stories where somebody like doesn't quit and they put everything into it and they try over and over again and they don't let rejection um, kind of dictate whether their dream happens or not. And that was kind of my story. And how do you differentiate with which path it is that you're supposed to take? That's an excellent question. And I'm not sure that I'm the arbiter of the answer. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I, mean I, 
like I, I get it, right? Like that's a like I would love to be like, here's how you know. And I just I don't know. I think you I think it's a personal decision that everyone's making. And I think yeah, I mean, I mean, there are some people who like, like, if you think about it, right, um, people who are not loyal to their employer end up making like thousands to millions of dollars more over the lifetime of their career by like changing jobs sometimes sure. or like, you know, and so there's all these like things that you're weighing. Um, and I think ultimately, like, you just, you take what you got and you like, make these decisions, but I don't know. Cause I'm thinking about a couple of things. Um, also that you're going to have to edit out all my ums. I'm just very sorry to whoever does this. Yeah, um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking about a couple of things and some of them are, you know, the person who is going to call it quits and then find that, their next thing that they decide to devote their passion to was the thing that they like, that was the place they needed to be all along and it like works out for them and they like whatever. But also let me do this and then we'll come back to that. So, and then I think about the person who like, you know, doesn't quit and is just, you know, biding their time. And then finally they break through. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I don't know what to tell you. Here's what I can tell you. <clears throat> Everything counts. Right. So those years that I spent time traveling and I spent time working, I worked at a jail at the time. I was a counselor at a jail. Wow. I spent time traveling and I spent time working at a jail and I spent time like all of that mattered in what I do now. All of that like matters for the references I have for the rest of my life, for how I understand mental health, for how I understand myself as a global citizen. All of that mattered. And so even like when I was like getting rejected in all those years and like the sadness that came from it and the resilience that came from it, like that part even matters today. What I love about that is no matter which path you choose, energy is never wasted. So even though you're working towards something and you might not get the result that you thought you wanted, those experiences help shape the person that you are and will continue to be a great uh, avenue for you to use as a resource. Now, let's unpack the feelings of rejection. Sure. So when you sorry, can I say like one other thing? Yeah, okay. of course. Because like you said that and I was thinking about like how I'm not going to say universal a message it is, but how that like message of. Hey, like this is going to impact the later and like everything matters, like how it shows up in so many different things, right? Like, you know, like biblically, it would be like, hey, all things work together for the good of them that love him. Um, it is the theme of Slumdog Millionaire. It is the theme of, um, oh, I'm missing it. I'm blowing it. But like, there's so many times that like that message comes up and like that theme comes up. That's just like very interesting to me that like, I don't know. Like, as you were saying that, I was like, oh, like this is in so many different things. So anyway, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, that's good. Uh, and so let's go back to the rejection. Yeah. Um, this is kind of what um, piqued my curiosity and wanted you to hop on this podcast because 
I think we are perfectly imperfect human beings. Sure. And I think there's strength in vulnerability. And I think maybe now you can look through it with a different lens because obviously at the time, I'm sure it really sucked. And I have my own experiences I can share on that subject. But when you were getting rejected, how did that make you feel? Did you have feelings of self-worth caught up in that? Or, or yeah, just how did you go about processing it? Yeah, I, that's tough. I think like, I think there's like your thoughts, right? And then there's like, oh, if I'm going to, if I'm going to live this life and not be sad every day, I need to do something with this, right? And so my thoughts and feelings after rejection are these like, you're not good enough. And like, people don't see you as valuable and you're not competitive and you're like, like, it doesn't matter. Like to the point where like, I stopped telling people I was applying, right? Like it just, it it didn't make any sense for me to like share that as if like there was going to be good news. in you know, when I got my decision, because there had never been good news and I wasn't expecting good news. And so, yeah, there was just this like, I don't know the thing that you want to do. Maybe it's not possible. And sometimes you just have to like rest in that for a second. And then you can like feel sad about it. And then, I don't know, I had these ways of like bolstering myself up to be able to like deal with this rejection. And that was like things like the reason why people are accepted and rejected, like they know so little about you that like, is it really because you're not, is it really because they see enough or like know enough about your value to make a real assessment about like what you'll be able to do? And it's like, no, that can't possibly be right. Yeah. I do not think that at all. Yeah. And then there were other things that was just like, I don't know. I was like, uh, okay, like move on. Like, don't give myself a lot of time to, like, stay in that place of you're not good enough. Because while I didn't get in, there were also other parts of my life that were going well. And if there weren't, there were other parts of my life that could go well. And so it was just, I don't know. It was like finding a way to, like, bring this, like, what felt like a really big rejection and just, like, shrink it down into, like, hey, this is a really small part. And it's like a really small, like, piece of your life. And like, maybe, like, like I tell you now, and I'm like, yeah, I got rejected at least like five times from grad school and it seems big. Um, but like, at this point, like, I finished the program, you know? So it's <laughs> like, right. it's ultimately like kind of a small part. And I just like, that's okay. And so, yeah, I think it's like, Hey, if I can, if I can see far enough into the future and I know that like my life is going to be bigger than one rejection or even six or five or what, however many, right. Like if I can just see that, like, Hey, like it's gotta be bigger than this, then, then I can get past the, like the feelings that like, Hey, I'm not enough and I'm not right. And it's like, I am not enough to a particular group of people who like looked at, you know, me on 
this paper in this context at this time. And they're just not the most important assessors of my life, even if I really wanted to get into their school. Absolutely. My family, my friends, like my, right, like much more important assessors of my life and who I am and what's important. Absolutely. I'd like to share my experience with rejection. Even though Uh, I know this story. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm a physical therapist, but it did take me three tries to get into PT school. And it is a very um, competitive programs now. I think it's as competitive as med school. And so the first time I applied, I got rejected. And it was kind of like a, hey, I'm going to apply, see what happens. So when I got that rejection, it was not surprising to me. But then I retook a bunch of courses, uh, retook my GREs to get a better score. And I thought I had done enough to get into PT school. And when I got rejected that second time, that was really disheartening, right? That was the point where I thought, man, what if my best isn't good enough? And, uh, and the feelings that come with that. Now, when you grow up in an Asian household, especially with a very strict and stern Asian dad, there's no time to mope around. There's very much a, okay, so what are you going to do now, right? So... Uh, I understand, you know, I don't know if it's has a father figure, but just the mindset of just keep it moving. What are you going to do next? Uh, that was his kind of mentality. Whereas my mom and God bless her soul, she was there for me. You know, was able to console and help me just be uh, willing and able to sulk in this sadness that I was feeling. Um, but again, not letting this define who I was. Now. Um, When I finally got in, there was definitely a euphoric moment and a acceptance of myself of recognizing I am good enough to do this, not based on anyone's assessment, but based on the path that I felt like was for me. Now, that being said, you know, I had a kinesiology degree in undergrad. And for me, I remember having that thought of like, man, if I'm not able to be a PT, what can I do with a kinesiology degree? And I was like, yo, maybe I want to just be a PE teacher, which I don't know, like shout out to the PE teachers. I think it's a great job, but it's just not one that I felt like was for me. And so um, I was able to get through that. Now, I wanted to ask you, um, because when I look back on my life, I can very much see that these rejections and these no's led me on the path that I was supposed to be on. Mm -hmm. And the way that I genuinely feel about my life is if you would have given 18-year-old Unu a crystal ball and you said, you can design the life that you want and pick every little thing that you want, the career that you want, where you want to be, and the list goes on. And you would have given that 18-year-old kid that magic ball or that crystal ball to give all the wishes that he wanted it literally wouldn't be as good of a life as I have today because it wouldn't have been without all the things you had to work through, all the challenges that you had to overcome to make it really feel worth it. I think because we've faced adversity and worked through it, we appreciate where we're at now much more than if it was just given to us on the first attempt. Now, um, I also believe that I've always had this feeling that someone or something is looking after me, 
Now, some people might call that God. Some people might call it the universe. Some people might call it luck. And you're prepared for the moment, not when you think you're ready, but when you're ready in the eyes of a greater being. Did you have any thoughts like that? Um, yeah, I mean, I, so like, yeah, for sure. Um, and so much as like, you know, I, how do I say this? I would endorse the, uh, the providence of God that, that he does what he wants and, and that he, you know, like, like my story feels, my story feels almost too planned to be random. And that is something that has always felt important to me and to, you know, to, to trust, like to trust that, like, it is not just, Hey, like everything like just happens. It is that like things happen and somebody is in charge and somebody is like written it as opposed to it just being, I don't know, out there, like, like un organized right and so so yeah so like i am a person who attributes that to god and and like we'll just kind of like lay down that like it is a surrendering also to like god and god's plan that allows me to be like you know this is okay like when when stuff that like doesn't quite go my way it's like hey this is okay like it doesn't mean that I'm abandoned. It doesn't mean that I haven't been given what I want. It means that like somebody is thinking about something and they see it in a different way than me and they're in charge and I got to be okay with it. I am. And have you always been a man of God or how did you develop your faith? Oh man. Man. <laughs> um, that's wild. So I, I grew up in church, if you will. Um, but, uh, so uh, this is kind of a, just a wild thing. So I, I grew up in church and, you know, got like even baptized as a young kid. And that is like, hey, you profess that your belief is in Christ and the cross. Right. And I think that I, I think that I probably intellectually understood that like, that's what it was and got baptized, but I don't know that my heart was really there. And then in college, I actually like became passionate about Christ and the cross, um, actually based on what I know today to be a church and sermon of theology that I think is like errant. And so like the idea that God does what he wants and he could like capture my heart with bad theology is like very like interesting and wild to me, but like God does what he wants. Right. And so it wasn't until, um, a bit later as I was like growing up, whatever, that I really became invested in like understanding um like theology in a way that i feel like is is more accurate and so that's that's a little bit of the journey it's it's very intellectual but i think like ultimately the important parts are like god captured my heart and like he ultimately has not let me go and that essentially like paints how i how i see the world Does that makes sense that's beautiful <laughs> i will just share that i'm at a place now <clears throat> where I do have a relationship with God, but our upbringings are very different. Whereas uh, it sounds like you were raised in a family that promoted God's teaching, going to church, 
Whereas my parents are Buddhist, but they never pressured me into believing one thing or another. They just thought that once I got to the right age, I'd be able to make that decision on my own. And uh, I'm very grateful for that because um, I was a very inquisitive kid, observant. Um, but recently, I've actually uh, changed my views on the whole thing. And um, I was in Sedona. Arizona. And whenever I get to go to Sedona, I get these little messages. And on this particular trip, uh, I'll just say that I found God. And how this came to be was I flew into Phoenix and I had to first get a rental car. And they're one of four rental cars that I could have picked. And I ended up going with this Volkswagen Jetta. Okay. Now, um, Mind you, this is rare. I was a one in four shot. I could have picked literally any of the other cars, but I picked this one. The white woman special. <laughs> the white woman special. Sure. You know, there's a Toyota Corolla. I did not go with that one. <laughs> but yeah, this is where it's meant to be. So anyways, the car is on. Okay. So you drive it out of the parking garage and then I made my way to Sedona. What I didn't recognize until after I turned it off was when you turn it on, there's like a setting, right? And this particular setting, whether it was from the person before me or whatnot, or if it was a message that I was meant to see, it said God's child. And I thought that was very interesting because every time I would turn the car on, it would show this message, God's child. And so I was taking the seminar of myofascial release and um, I happened to work with a woman who is referred to as Sister Bernadette. Now, she's referred to as Sister Bernadette because she actually used to be a nun. She was in a very uh, traditional convent, moved to a more liberal one, uh, ended up leaving that, finding Reiki, and then ultimately myofascial release. And she's now uh, running her own successful myofascial release practice. Shout out Sister Bernadette, uh, therapy on the Mesa. Check her out. Um, but I got to have lunch with her and her friend Linda. And uh, I was just asking her about her story and how she found myofascial release and how her faith influences her work. And for her, she had said that when we're doing myofascial release and specifically this part of it, this branch of it called unwinding, she feels like that is prayer for the body. And that resonated with me. And so here I am. One, I get this uh, this message on the dashboard saying God's child. I happen to partner with Sister Bernadette. And then even John, who's teaching it, uh, he says a, a bit about prayer. And then I, I kind of get to this place where I'm like, there's a message here. In addition to that, one of the Airbnbs I was staying at was next to the Sedona Public Library. And right next to the library, there's like a used bookstore where you can get books for very cheap. So I was checking that out while I was waiting to check in for my Airbnb. And there's a book that calls out to me. Okay. The book is a called, it's like listening to your inner awareness. And as I start reading this book, he pretty much just says that everyone has this inner voice that you can learn to listen to and trust. And it's the voice of Jesus. However you want to take that, whether you believe in it or not, that's what he says it is. And so I'm at a place where I'm like, yeah, I've heard about this Jesus character. I don't know too much about him. I don't know that he died for our sins. But anyways, I open this book 
and I start browsing through it. Um, and there's a particular chapter about prayer in there, what prayer is, what it isn't. And so these themes of prayer come up on this trip. And so there's this place in Sedona, it's called Chapel of the Holy Cross. And I feel called to go to this place. Mind you, I, I'm, I don't really go to church. I'm not very religious. I'm kind of exploring this space of being with God. Um, but I will say that whenever I talk to others, it's like me getting secondhand information, right? Like we can understand him on an intellectual level. And there's a guy named Aubrey Marcus who has a great analogy about this. He's like, if you've never met God, imagine me saying, hey, have you ever had an avocado, right? And if you've never had an avocado, you'd be like, what is that? And I'd be like, you know, it's like a, a soft green fruit. It's kind of mushy. There's a big seed. Uh, it's got a bunch of, you know, fats that are good for you. It's delicious. It's like so good for you. And if you've never had it, you'd be like, okay, well, what's kind of soft and squishy? What can I kind of think of that helps me relate to what that is? But then if you ever had guacamole, you're like, oh my gosh, you know, there's lime, there's salt, pepper, there's cilantro, onions, tomatoes, and then they mush it up and put, and then you serve it on a tortilla chip. Man, I know what guacamole tastes like. I know what a avocado tastes like. And that's the experience I wanted to have with God where it's like, I hear about him from many people, but I wanted to have my own experience with him, okay? And so my plan was to go to the Chapel of the Holy Cross, and I go with, or I make this trip to Sedona with my girlfriend, Yvette, and, um, and she said, or I asked her, because I was like, hey, do you have any interest of going to the Chapel of the Holy Cross? She's like, nah, it's not really for me. And so while she's getting treated at Therapy on the Rocks, which is John's physical therapy clinic out there, I make my trip to the chapel of the Holy Cross. And I was planning on reading this chapter about prayer and then going and saying a prayer. And as I'm driving out to this chapel, I get overcome with a small sensation of emotion. I can't really describe it, but I get the feeling like I want to cry, but, I, but it's not coming out. And a tip for anyone who decides to go to the chapel of the Holy Cross you want to drive all the way as far as you can up and pick a parking spot close to the chapel. There's some people who give in to the fear of seeing people park. They park early and then it is a hike to the top. Okay, so if you guys are going to go, make sure you park as close to the top as you can. And so anyways, I was planning on reading the book about prayer. But because I come over this emotion, I'm like, well, I don't need to read this book. I'm just going to go in there. So I go into the chapel and there's this huge, beautiful monument of Jesus on the cross. Uh, there's windows behind. It's a beautiful day outside with the clouds. And then I sit on the, one of the benches and then I just start praying. Mind you, at this point in my life, I don't really pray. And I just say, dear Heavenly Father, and these words just come through me. It's like I could see myself or hear myself saying these words, but it's not actually me. It's just coming out of me. And I say, you know, dear Heavenly Father, I hope that you can help me. And I'm praying for the development of me and Yvette's relationship, that we can be healthy and happy, so that our family can be healthy and happy, so that our friends can be healthy and happily, so that we can have holy matrimony, so that our kids are happy and healthy. And as I'm saying this prayer, 
this emotion is so intense. And I let out one tear from each eye as I'm saying this, or not even me, it's just coming through me. And then I say a prayer for John. Uh, John is not in the best health, but I've seen him. So I'm just praying for this, his health. And then this feeling leaves me. And that was the moment where I was like, he exists. You're like, I had guacamole. Yeah, I had guacamole. <laughs> I had a huge serving of guacamole. Now, this is why I know that there is a, there's someone superior being looking after me or energy or the universe. Because when I'm at home and when me and Yvette have talked about the idea of kids, I have always said, you know, there's a biological clock for kids, but there's not one on marriage. So why do we got to get married first? Who even says we have to do that? And she begrudgingly goes along with it. But her, she definitely says like, yo, my, my parents would not like that idea. But she goes along. There's with not it. a biological clock, but they will kill you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's not that's not out of the realm of possibility. And so anyways, when I say this prayer, it comes out of me with holy matrimony before kids. So that's when I know that if and when Mimi Vet choose to have kids, that we do need to be married before. And so when I tell her this story, obviously she was very happy. It's not only here that I wanted to get married first, but two, that I had found God because she comes from a religious background. Uh, she was, uh, I think, Pentecostal Christian. And so her parents are very religious and um, she never pushed me towards it, but she was very appreciative that I was curious about God. And so as I had this experience of where I actually found him and I felt his presence, there's a knowing, not a knowing to understand, but a deeper knowing of, uh, I don't know, just a, there's not like an intellectual understanding. It's a deeper knowing of the truth. Now. When I've talked to different people, it was her sister and, and other people, they said that the feeling that I felt was spirit or the Holy Spirit. And they said that, you know, some people will go their entire lives without ever feeling this spirit once. So for you to have felt it once is truly a blessing. And I do feel that way because if that is the only time that will, I will ever feel spirit or the Holy Spirit, then it was enough for me to validate his existence to myself. Now, I'm not here on a high horse saying like, oh, he chose me, you know, I'm better, now I'm a man of God. No, 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 it's not that at all. It's if you have the desire to try to find him for yourself, go and do that. Taste the guacamole. Don't just keep learning about avocados and never tasting that, that guacamole. Um, but now that I have tasted the guacamole, I definitely lead, definitely lead my life a little bit differently. I think I've always had a understanding or a curiosity towards God. But now that I have felt his presence and something that we learn in mild fast release is trust what you're feeling. Don't just ignore those. Otherwise, they often manifest in different ways. Yeah. And so now that I have this deeper feeling and knowing, it's it's honestly helped me process things. I think oftentimes um, we look through our own eyes of righteousness versus the eyes of God. And so just like we talked about our stories about rejection and those feelings that come with it, through our eyes, it's those feelings of inadequacy. Am I good enough? 
is this really going to be for me? What if my best isn't good enough? But when we take a step back and you can look into the future of being like 20 years from now, this moment is going to be insignificant, Mm -hmm. right? And it's almost like a way that you're able to look at it through the eyes of God, where it's, hey, I'm preparing you for the path that I want you to walk on, Uh, not the one that you see for yourself. You know, I think there's a great quote that, uh, that makes me laugh. It's, if you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans. And so it's exactly that. It's not the moments when you think you're ready or when I think I'm ready. It's when I'm actually ready, when all the pieces are in place. And it's just, do I have the perseverance to trust it? Do I have the ability to keep working, knowing that there's nothing going to change, knowing that there are going to be challenges, obstacles and rejections There's a breakthrough for me because for me, I don't see myself doing anything else. Now, physical therapy can change, right? Like how you do it. But like for me, it gives me a purpose. You know, I think everybody has a purpose in life. And my honest belief about it is everyone goes through struggles and traumas. But when you get through that and you learn what it took to get through that, and you're able to help somebody else end their suffering, that is what I believe we're put on this earth to do. In addition to having all of the feelings that come with the human experience, right? Uh, There's a great quote that I heard from Rain, who played Dwight on The Office. He says, you know, we're not human beings having a spiritual experience. We're spiritual beings having a human experience. And so with that, I think... uh, for me, especially, I, I can't do things if I don't see the purpose of it. Um, and so for me in my life and my career, uh, it definitely feels like this is what I'm supposed to be doing, that I'm on the right path. And so even though I have disappointments and hardships along the way, uh, I just trust that I'm going in the right direction. That's the path for me. I'm laughing at you because I can recall you getting into trouble for that notion of like, I can't do things if I don't see the purpose of it. And you deserve that trouble for that. (laughs) (laughs) I I was definitely a troublemaker. There's certain things. Okay. What I've come to learn and understand from that is I believe I'm a neurodivergent person. Hmm. Do you know what that means? Of course. Can you explain to the audience what that means? Um, So, so this is a, this is a tough because it's become such a like, popular term. Um, but in essence, it can, it can indicate that like, I don't know the the other term necessarily, but like neural normal people like work in a particular way, whether they're like, it's how they socially interact. It is how they engage with, um, how they engage with, uh, academia, how they engage with learning, how they engage with people, how they engage with authority, right? Like there's a, Neurotypical, that's the way. Uh, this is a neurotypical way of doing it. And so people who identify as like neurodivergent um, at some scale could have something like autism spectrum disorder. Mm-hmm. And at other scales could have things like ADHD or like these other kind of like, but for some people, it's just like, hey, I feel different and I don't feel like I identify like other like neurotypical people. So depending on where you like are identifying here, I'm not sure, but like, that's how I would say, like, there's just like, Hey, like there's this neurotypical way that it's like, you kind of feel like you do things the way everybody else does it. Mm -hmm. And then there's this neuro, like 
divergent way where it's like, no, I just like, I don't fit into that. And I think like, if everybody really thought deeply about it, they could probably find ways where they're both. Yeah, I think it's a spectrum, mm-hmm. right? It's not like all on one side, all on the other. Sure. But the the example that comes to mind for me is in PT school, we have a dress code, mm-hmm. right? And I was like, I was adamant and against the dress code. Of because, course you were. Because <laughs> for me, it was like, yeah, we're in class. We're just studying, taking tests. I just want to be comfortable, right? I don't care to dress up for the same 35 students that we see every day. Now, if there's a guest lecturer, right, from somebody coming up, I have no problem wearing a suit and tie and going the full, the whole thing, right? But it's when it's, it's like, who are we trying to impress? Like, we know the students in the program. The teachers who teach us know who we are. And it's not based on how we look every day. And so for me, I got crucified for having that thought of like, why do we have to dress up so well if it's not serving a purpose that I can see? And then I got I got in trouble for that, let's yeah. just say. So Unu, you I mean, you can identify as neurodivergent if you'd like to. You're also from Austin, Texas. So it's the norm. To yeah. be like- <laughs> I'm saying this because I also got, (laughs) I also got like, you know, somebody was like, you know, actually it was my advisor at one point was like, like, you didn't even wear a suit to your interview. And I, it didn't even occur to me. And like, the reason I didn't wear a suit to my interview was because I worked at a jail. So we don't wear ties. Like, it's not a thing that we do. Like, it's not safe to wear a tie. And I probably came from work to my interview, but like, I didn't even like, think about the fact that like I was supposed to wear a suit (laughs) and so like there was always this kind of narrative of like Marlon kind of like actually this was this was in my file like some like like some professor had written that like Marlon kind of like rocks to the beat of his own drum and it was all this kind of like yeah and so at some point I didn't argue with that I was like yeah it's kind of who I it's kind of who I am but I, I do think there's a certain level of like being from Austin, Texas, that is like, there's like a snootiness that we just kind of reject. Sure. Yeah. So that makes perfect sense because I also got in trouble for that. So. Yeah, maybe we're just the same. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I mean, we didn't grow up very, <laughs> <laughs> like very similar neighborhoods. And I think it's important for everyone to learn to rock to the beat of their own drum. But also, you have to know when to play the game. Absolutely. And I feel like you fight playing the game more than you should. That's debatable. Okay. That's debatable. Okay. Uh, I, I, like I said, as long, if you can tell me the purpose and it aligns, then I have no problem following the rules. So here's the issue. Sometimes the unveiling of a purpose, like the journey to the unveiling of the purpose needs to be slow. And I think it takes humility to like rest in that I'm going to let somebody like lead me into that mm-hmm. without questioning everything they want me to do. And like, I think that's what you sometimes miss Yeah, when you're not humble enough to be like, I'll do this even though I don't see the purpose. Yeah. Humble pie. That's my favorite <laughs> dessert. It's going to be my new favorite dessert. I think there's, there's definitely some merit to that. I also think that a lot of times we just follow rules without questioning anything. And that forces us to do things that maybe we don't like, you know? Sure. But, yeah, I, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, but I think like 
it is indicative of playing the game. And I like I had to learn this myself of like, yeah, there was stuff that I thought was like stupid. But if I did it, then it meant I had that person's ear. And so then when I really needed something and there was a battle that I really wanted to fight, then people didn't think I was just like a rebel without a cause. They knew that like if I was willing to fight this, it was because it was absolutely necessary. So I'll give you I'll give you two examples. And they're actually from when I worked at the jail. Yeah. Um, the first one was, I guess, actually, this happened a, a little bit early. Um, they used to write all their notes and they would refer to people as inmates. And I just couldn't do it. I just, I, there's just something that didn't sit right with me because like the, the term inmate comes with its like level of judgment, its level of whatever. And I just, I started referring to them as patients. By the time I left, that was, that was standard practice. As beautiful. And, and the reason was, <laughs> the reason was, is like, I didn't try to fight everything. There were just like certain battles that I was like, like, let's fight these well, because it matters. Mm-hmm. So I wasn't like, I wasn't fighting the dress code. I wasn't <laughs> fighting the, like, there's like these like small things that's like, hey, maybe I don't see the purpose for, but like, we're like, let's let that go because there are big things that actually matter that if I play the game well, I then have input in these places. And if you don't play that game well, people don't listen to you. Like, like you're, you're the boy who cried foul too much. Yeah. Like, even though it's boy who cried wolf, I know. But like, you're the boy who cried foul too much. And if you don't, if you do that, like people like, like the times that you do cry foul, people are like, oh, he's just whatever. And they're easy. You're easily, more easily dismissed. Okay. I can agree with that. Um, I think what I love hearing about what you just shared is you will you will fight against the norm if it's for serving an audience, especially the inmates or the people who you were trying to help and serve. And so by removing the identity of an inmate, because obviously we think of negative things when we think inmates and changing that to patients in which, hey, I work with patients as a physical therapist, it humanizes them, you know? And I think I would agree with that. When you're fighting for a greater cause, then playing the game will allow you to have the voice um, to share that will be listened to versus for me when I was fighting the dress code, that was just for me. (laughs) So so I I understand that I was just serving myself. And so I think when you serve a greater good or, or a higher purpose or for others, then yes, then I think that your words and how you do things definitely matter a little bit more and how you play the game feeds into that all right so let me ask you this question what are you not supposed to be serving a greater good or for other people or so so i think our upbringings uh influence the direction in which we think about that sure so i am the youngest of my family and so okay yeah well there goes my excuse (laughs) but i'll just say that like i was spoiled growing up like i grew up my grandmother and we were born on the same birthday fung why you got it. Wow, dude. That, yo, no, I learned that when I, I learned that from you. Okay, yo. I, <laughs> I, like, I taught you something. I learned that from you yeah. when we were 14 or something. <laughs> like. <laughs> That's awesome. Great memory. Um, but anyways, I grew up there and uh it's because we were born on the same birthday, I was like her favorite. And so I think as a grandparent, you just spoil your grandkids. So since I grew up with her. That's kind of what I, I felt. And in Asian um, culture, it's like a hierarchy um, of the siblings. So like 
the oldest is supposed to take care of the youngest. And it and it's like, if I got in trouble, then my older brothers would get punishment because they thought, how could you let your little brother do that kind of thing? And it wasn't anything serious, but my so you have to understand that like, like, for example, spanking your kids, right? In America, when we talk about that, there's kind of a hush-hush, oh, you shouldn't do that. It's going to de- affect their development, which I do think that there's uh, valid- or validity to that. But if you were in Vietnam, that's just like, that's just like another day in the park. That's just like an accepted, normal thing out there. And so for my parents to, to, to come to America, like that was a normal thing. So like, uh, I remember one time I forgot my shoes when I was going to karate and this particular day we had to run outside for cardio. And since I didn't have my shoes, I stayed inside. I got a little private lesson and it actually was a great day for me. But when I told my grandma, yeah, I didn't have my shoes, so I couldn't run with the other kids. She was like, Telling my brother, you let him walk outside the house without shoes. What kind of older brother are you? And she gave him a little beating for that. <laughs> and so, like, I I don't know if that's part of it, but I know that it is something that I'm starting to learn and be more comfortable with, and recognizing that, like, yeah, we're supposed to be here to help others, to live for others. You know, I think um, when I look at nature. Um, you see that, right? Like the sun doesn't shine for itself. The trees don't provide shade for itself. The animals don't do things for themselves. It's all an ecosystem. And when we can look through that lens, um, in which I try to do of like, you know, I'm part of something much bigger than myself. And if I can be comfortable with that and try to see the lessons on that, then it's easier for me to not get frustrated doing the day-to-day tasks where I'm, I think that it's all on me. You know, and so I'll say that I think I'm at this place now in my life where I recognize that I'm with Yvette, who's a very caring person. And so when I see those things, it's like, man, how come I I don't do that? I should be doing that. And so I think it's a shift. I think everyone goes at their own pace. You know, I think uh, something that I've learned is like, it's not selfish to put yourself first. It's selfish to expect other people to put you first. But for me, it's like, if I am pouring from an empty cup, I can't help anybody. So uh, it's learning like, hey, this is what I need to do for myself. And then adding that layer of so that I can serve others, of which I've learned from whether it be you, Yvette, or those around me. I mean, it's a journey. I think that's kind of how you're describing it. I think it's a it's a cool journey. I think like, I don't know, I'm thinking about this whole, there's a lot. There is. <laughs> like, do I dress spanking? Do I dress like what do I like? What do I respond to here? But like, ultimately, it's it's great. How about this? Let's end on a note yeah. um, in which whatever you'd like to share uh, oh, that gosh. you can share. If there's something that you want to let out, lead from the heart. Oh gosh, we'll be here all day. Uh, let's rein this in. Um, let's 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 rein this in with where we started, and that is rejection and ultimately how rejection is part of the story but not the entirety of it and having that perspective that like it can be like part of your story and a hurtful part of your story and it matters in that way and there's going to be more right like I'll give you another context of rejection. I told you. 
Uh, I'll give you another context <laughs> on rejection. Um, so as a, as a therapist, I often, like often talk to people who have this angst. And this angst is, I really like this person. And I just cannot share that with them. I can't tell them I like them. I can't ask them out. I can't. And I can't. And it like, it drives people nuts. Like it does. Like it's like we, I mean, we kind of all been there. You know what I mean? Like, hey. it, like it drives people nuts. And, um, and sometimes I have to like, I, 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 t- I tell the story a lot and it's like, Hey, right now your anxiety is here because this is a podcast. I'll say that my hand is like right at my chin. Um, so your anxiety is here. And I'm like, if you ask this person out, your anxiety is going to go here, hands at the top of my head, and then you're going to find out what this person like says. And maybe they say yes, or maybe they say no. And then like your pain level, depending on like what they say, is going to rise or fall. But regardless of where your pain level goes, your anxiety level is going to drop because you will have the answer. Mm-hmm. For the record, my hand has now moved down to like my chest, um, right? And so, and then we can we can do the pain level thing because like we can respond to pain level because we can address like, oh, it hurts that she said no, or it's great that she said yes, right? Like we can address the pain level and then like pretty much figure that out. Like there's something we can do about that. But that anxiety is going to stay there until you make a move. And so people will be like, well, if I do this, my pain level, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. Right. And that's what's kind of like bolstering our anxiety. But you're already un, like having an unpleasant experience. Mm-hmm. So like, what are we going to do about that unpleasant experience? Yeah. And it's like sometimes it takes increasing your anxiety to decrease your anxiety. And so that is just like another thing that we think about when we think about rejection. Right. But ultimately, even that rejection, like. in a like an amount of time is going to be a small part of it because you're going to move on and you're going to like other people and you're gonna, yeah it's going to hurt you're going to move on and you're going to like other people and, and so i think like sometimes we get so scared of rejection that like will sit in our anxiety or we get so scared of rejection that we stop dreaming and we stop being like oh, I can do hard things or I can try hard things or I can like try it again and things like that. And so really having a perspective of whether I get in or I don't is okay. I need to try. I need to like, like honestly, like I guess the way I would say is like there is a particular courage about putting yourself in a position to be rejected that is admirable. And yes, rejection hurts, but don't stop being an admirable person because that rejection could hurt. Because sometimes you win. <laughs> like, like, yeah, like I get it. Like sometimes the, uh, the uh, like proportion or ratio is off, right? Because I got a whole lot of rejection, but like the win was big. And I'll, and I'll be honest with you, it wasn't big immediately. Like when I first got in, I still kind of thought that was an accident. And I didn't really tell people that I got into graduate school because I didn't want them to think I was going to succeed or like have expectations that I was going to succeed at graduate school because I wasn't sure I was. And 
I mean, we won't talk about this today, but like I almost got kicked out of graduate school a few times. I did a whole lot of like things that were like super important to my life, but they made graduate school take longer than, you know, but like at this point, um, I'm at the win. And so like, it's not a matter of like, like those five rejections mean very little when you get to the win. And so I think like just being able to, I don't know, being able to like have that perspective and being able to like still be courageous and try things, even though rejection is coming, like stay, stay there, like, like, like stay in that, like admirable, that admirable courage, whatever it takes to get there, like be there until you make the decision for yourself that like, Hey, like this isn't where I'm supposed to be. I love it. And then be somewhere else. <laughs> excellent beautifully put uh way to summarize where we started i love it all um congratulations for finally graduating i appreciate walking that. tomorrow at you have to throw it finally like that that's fine uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, i appreciate you hopping on the podcast sharing your insights being open and honest with us yeah can and, i tell you something yeah of course i know that your journey is very new but i have prayed intermittently for years that God would capture your heart. So it's very interesting to see like this kind of process. And it goes to show that prayer works. (laughs) (laughs) And with that, we are up and out of here. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to an episode of Myofascial Health. I help myofascial release therapists create their own websites, even if they don't know how to code. If you're just starting your own myofascial release practice and need your own website, or if you already have your own myofascial release practice and want to get your website audited for free, learn more about how I can help at www.myofascial.health/website.